All right, we're good to go. <clears throat> um, okay, well, if you look at the first slide, this is, uh, this is something that... Um, how can I put this? It just looks boring. It just sounds boring. And, you know, there are poor, misguided, underprivileged souls who think that Adventist history is actually boring. And the fact is, it can easily be made very boring. We still good? Something changed. Okay, we're good. Okay. Um, I, I am not interested in history for the sake of history. It just does not appeal to me. There are all sorts of little isolated tidbits of history. And there might be interesting, you know, some particular individual's life story from, you know, wherever, whenever. But, you know, I just don't have enough time in my life to deal with all of that. And so I go looking for history that has some value to it. Um, I actually kind of... Remember Henry Ford? Remember his famous comment, history is bunk? <laughs> I, I kind of agree with him, you know, despite the fact that I teach this stuff. Um, well, then I went and I wrote a book. <clears throat> and um, Adventist history, right there in the, in the subtitle, you know? And, it, and it, I tried to dress it up, but it still sounds kind of boring, you know? Uh, in in some small circles of uh, Adventist society, I've come to be known as kind of an Adventist history guy, you know, and that's that's fine. But it's boring, and it doesn't really strike the core of why I have any interest in it in the first place. So I came up with a new title. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it has its, its pros and cons, I'm sure. Um... I am really only interested in history as a way to understand at least the present and hopefully the future. Uh, futury is probably not going to make the cut into the dictionary anytime soon. And I got to thinking about it, and it just didn't seem like it was appropriate for a university you know, audience. And so I came up with a, um, an alternate title. If it makes you feel better, we can go with this. Uh, and, and that's more or less, you know, accurate if you can decipher it all, you know. Um, <clears throat> what I want to look at this weekend, just select, selected episodes from Adventist history. Uh, there's a bit of a chronological flow to them, but they're somewhat disjointed. I just picked the ones that I, I liked, actually. Ones that, to my mind at least, hold greater than average merit as an, an avenue of trying to understand not just the future, but specifically the closing events of Adventism. Um, I really worry when we lose sight of the concept of closing events. You know? It's, it's like... I, I don't want to... I don't want to die before the job's done. <laughs> you know, we've got to have a we've got to have a closer on this operation. You know, so <clears throat> that's what I'm after. Um, to begin with, though, I like to start off with this quote. This is a wonderful quote. 
The Lord directed Moses to recount to the children of Israel his dealings with them and their deliverance from Egypt and their wonderful preservation in the wilderness. He was to call to mind their unbelief and murmuring when brought into trial and the Lord's great mercy and loving kindness which had never forsaken them. It's an interesting balance there. This would stimulate their faith and strengthen their courage. You know, I have my little problems with some presentations on Adventist history. There are some presentations which are focused so solely on the unbelief and the murmuring that if I shared that perspective, I might also share the conclusion of some of these dear souls that the church is hopelessly lost and wandering around forever and ever and ever and ever in the wilderness of sin. Um, and some people have ended up with that conclusion. And then there are others that focus so much on the Lord's great mercy and loving kindness that it, it just seems to me that they're missing the opportunity to learn something. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to try and strike the balance and actually stimulate faith and strengthen courage. While they, the Israelites, would be led to realize their own sin and weakness, they would realize also that God was their righteousness and strength. It is just as essential that the people of God in this day should bear in mind how and when they have been tested and where their faith has failed. You know, this is, this is not quite your, you know, power of positive thinking and just, uh, you know, everything's wonderful, have a happy day approach. Where they have imperiled his, that would be God's cause by their unbelief and also by their self-confidence. God's mercy, his sustaining providence, his never-to-be-forgotten deliverances are to be recounted step by step. As God's people thus review the past, they should see that the Lord is ever repeating his dealings. That gives me hope that there's value in history. Have you ever had a teacher <clears throat> that never reviewed anything before the test? <laughs> that, never, um, that never hit the same topic twice? It's like, you know, they lecture one day on something totally new and they test you on it the next day and move on to another totally new topic. Now, maybe that's the way they do med school. I, you know, I haven't gone through med school, so I don't know how that works. Um, most of us like... Well, I won't say like, but most of us do a little better with our learning if, if you have a little repetition to it. <laughs> and God is ever repeating his dealings. Now, what to me that means is that if I can if I can uh, submit my mind to the Lord's leading, probably more than anything else, I should be able to find episodes in church history 
specifically Adventist history, that foreshadow events to come. That's, that's the premise I'm working from here. If I'm wrong on the premise, then I hope you enjoy the stories. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the premise I'm working from. I, I really believe that God is working with this church, heading in a certain direction, and, you know, it's like the, the children of Israel. You go round and round. You know, it's really easy, and I'm not trying to do this in any sort of a dogmatic or, or whatever sort of a way, but, you know, it's not hard to construct pretty close to 40-year cycles through Adventist history. You know, 1844, you can toss in 1856-57 as an interesting opportunity, but you can jump straight up to 1888, 1927-1928, there was a bit of a revival there again on the subject of righteousness by faith. Jump from... 28 to the late 60s, early 70s, there was a sort of a revival. It was kind of weird. I don't know how many of you would have been around to remember that. Um, but, you know, there was sort of a revival. And, you know, if you go from the late 60s, 40 years, it starts to get interesting, you know. Um, I'm not saying that the Lord works, you know, in some sort of a rigidly mathematical manner, but it's interesting. And I do believe that he's taking us around and around and around. And, and, you know, if we can't look at our past and see some similarities of this occasion to this occasion to this occasion, I think it means we're, we're missing the lesson. <laughs> That's what I think it means, you know. It's... <laughs> That's just, just my, my thought. Well, the most famous statement probably within Adventism on Adventist history comes from Life, um, Life Sketches, page 196. The nothing to fear. You know, we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and is teaching in our past history. That's a great statement. But I have one problem with it. <laughs> what, what do we actually know? You know? When Ellen White wrote that, was it like two sentences later? She says, having traveled over every step of the way, you know, she lived through it. I didn't. It wasn't my fault. You know? I was born at the wrong time. What can I do about that? I didn't live through it. If I'm going to get anything out of those years, I think I'm going to have to learn about them. Just kind of the hard, cold facts, as near as I've got it figured. Well, okay. We're going to um, sort of start at the beginning here. <clears throat> this is William Miller. Probably most of you knew that. William Miller sort of started this whole Adventist thing um, in, in certain ways. Of course, hey, I'm not saying that it was all brand new doctrine. You know, it's amazing how little Miller actually contributed to theology that, that sprang out the whole Adventist church. Basically, Miller did one thing effectively. He tied Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 together. 
Everything else grows out of that. If you want to kill the Adventist church immediately, split Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. Boom. It's over. And we can all be Baptists or whatever else. Um, But Miller was led by God in his study. His experiences are interesting. I recommend reading the life of William Miller if you have the opportunity. Miller began preaching moderately seriously in 1831. Probably most of you have heard the story, so I won't go into all the details. But Miller was feeling like he ought to share some of his his findings. And finally, he made this foolproof bargain with the Lord. He said, if you send me an invitation, then I'll preach on it, right? You know, and he'd never had an invitation. He was never going to have an invitation. And 30 minutes later, he had an invitation. And, you know, that was that was a little bit of a stress. And he worked his way through that out there in the woods behind the house type of thing, you know. I always like the little line about Lucianne. His, I think she was six or eight or something like that at the time. His, his youngest daughter, she had followed him out there when he went stomping out the back door and she came running back uh, to her mother and said, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy's gone crazy. He's out in the back screaming at the trees. Um, it's fine, you know, whatever it takes. Um, but, but Miller worked through that and he took that first invitation and he came back and had a letter in the mail inviting him to another church. And he went off there and, you know, it wasn't full time immediately. But pretty soon he was, a, he was a busy guy. But it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, it was just, it just wasn't taking off. He preached for nine or eight years from 31 to 39 And it really hadn't taken off. He'd gone around to quite a few different places, but they were all small towns, you know, kind of backwoods communities. A lot of people liked to have him come. It was interesting. It, it, you know, kind of, you know, stirred the brain cells a little bit. Uh, The ministers liked it because it got a lot of extra people in church. And yeah, that's a good thing from, you know, especially a congregational church where your salary is based off of the offering plate. So that was a good thing. Um... But the ministers weren't catching on and taking hold. And um, in 1839, that actually started to change. Um, Oops, uh uh-oh. That was slow, and now I hit it twice. I'm going to have to back up. There we go. I just have to wait for it. This gentleman on your right is Joshua V. Himes. Himes was an interesting guy. He was the pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston. Chardon Street was an upper crust church. You know, it, it, was, it was Boston. I mean, Boston was, you know, that was practically a real town in those days, you know. Um, and Chardon Street was not just, just a little church off the side. It was a, a socially upwardly mobile and a socially active and, and um, in, in the terms of social activism. They had a lot of abolitionists there. They had a lot of, of um, temperance advocates and whatnot. It was, you know, it was kind of socially appealing to, to have a cause. Let's put it that way. Well... Himes, somewhere, I don't know the details on this, but he heard of Miller, he invited him to come preach. He was actually kind of embarrassed when the guy showed up because Miller you know, Miller was kind of like, he looked an awful lot like an old farmer, which in fact he was. 
Um, but Himes listened. And at the end of his presentations, Himes was in a very awkward position because his conscience was telling him he had to do something about this. You know, our consciences will, will get to us now and then unless we take sufficient measures to prevent it. Um, I think we're better off when we let our conscience do its thing. Anyhow, Himes went up to Miller and he said, Do you believe this? I've, I've always thought he was maybe hoping that Miller would say, Well, no, it's actually just a joke. <laughs> it's one good way to get it off your conscience real fast. But, but Miller believed it. And, and Himes had not found a way around Miller's reasoning. And Himes later described it as like, it's like he, was, he was almost trapped. You know, It's not like he really wanted to get into this. But there was a logic to this whole situation. Miller said he believed it, and Himes said, so what are you doing about it? You know, what are you, what are you doing? How come you don't spread it? And Miller said, I'm doing everything I can. I'm preaching all I can, but I'm an old farmer. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't have the connections. I don't have the skills. Okay. Well, Himes knew what that meant because he had the connections and he had the skills. And, yeah, the Lord won that battle. It would have been very easy for Himes to say, wow, yeah, that is tough, but, you know, I really wish you well. And he could have sounded very sincere. (laughs) I've done it. (laughs) You know, be warm and filled. You know, how hard is that? Well, Himes, um, Himes got into it. That was December of 1839. By the end of January, he had the signs of the times rolling off the presses. Uh, he engineered speaking appointments for Miller in Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C. Um, he started publishing magazines. Eventually, before the, before the Millerite movement was over, there were over 100 different Millerite magazine publications going out. Himes is the guy who published the uh, 1843 chart, you know, the, the big old chart. You've all seen pictures of that, hopefully. Um, Himes was the guy who put it on the map. And as it was going on the map, camp meetings. Camp meetings became a pretty integral part of the Millerite movement at that point. The... Um, They started, the camp meeting started May of 1842. They uh, set up a committee to plan three camp meetings that summer. It's good. I like this better. The focus of the next few minutes here are going to be something, is, is going to be something along the lines of Dedication, consecration, enthusiasm, just plain get on the ball and do something type of, you know. I like this. The Millerite movement, 31, you know, that's good. The next year they had 40, 1844. Now, bear in mind, 1844, that was the summer when everybody was lost trying to figure out what was going on because their timekeeping had run out in the fall of 1844. Right? Remember that whole thing, the early disappointment? Okay. 
I still had, had 54 camp meetings in 1844, just trying to figure this whole thing out. Okay. Well, at that first camp meeting, somebody said, you need to get a tent. Um, the first camp meeting, they didn't, they didn't have a big tent. You know, they actually had a, a large building, and then they, they camped around the outside type of thing. But they said, you know, there are going to be places where you won't, you won't be able to get a building. You need a tent. So they got together and they talked about that at that first camp meeting. And they decided that, yeah, that was a pretty good idea. And so they decided to make what came to be known as the Great Tent. This was not just a tent. There we go. Just wondering how warm you like it out here in California. Um, this was <laughs> this was not just a tent. This was the largest tent in the country. It was the center pole 55 feet high? What was it? 110 feet in diameter. They could seat 4,000 when they obeyed the fire marshal, and 6,000 when they just kind of did their own thing. Um, <laughs> they, um, you know, this was a big tent. And what really impresses me is that they had it pitched. A month later, they built the tent. They didn't go out and buy it at Sears or something. They built it and had it up and a meeting going a month later. I like that. I like that. Um, you know, my background is, is a little different than a lot of people. That's fine. But... One of the things that, that made a big impression on my life, I, I was raised in pretty much a, a white-collar type of environment. My dad was an architect for the Navy, and it's like he went to work every morning, punched in at 7.40, punched out at every afternoon at 4.20, had a 40-minute lunch break somewhere in between, and that was it. It was a government job, so not a lot got done in between, but he went to work every day. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was, you know, that was the environment I grew up in, right? And then I had the opportunity, I spent three years up in Canada, more or less out in the bush. And it was so totally different than the white collar environment. I, I found it very refreshing, actually. Because all of a sudden, here were people that didn't require three weeks to establish who the committee would be that would discuss the issue that would been, then be recommended to the standing committee, which, you know, um, these were, there's something about this, this, this practical world type of thing where you just jump in and you do it, and the faster you do it, the quicker it gets done. Um, I think civilization has a way of weeding that out of us. I know there's some real startling logic in that, isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I like these guys, you know? Biggest tent in the country, have it in a month. Go for it. Okay. The messengers. Let's look at some of the people. Um, okay. I think I hit a wrong button again here. That's okay. We can look. Nope. There we go. We'll get there. Ah, this is sick. A little clicker sometimes clicks things that I'm not anticipating. There we go. No. Yes. There. Okay. Um, some of the messengers. Now, before the Millerite movement peaked, there were, oh, about 400 ministers, at least, out preaching. Okay? Miller, the head of the whole operation, right? 
I like this. Those souls whom I have addressed in my six months tour are continually before me, sleeping or waking. I can see them perishing by the thousands. And when I reflect on the accountability of their teachers who say, peace and safety, I am in pain for them. I don't feel that deeply. I should. By personality, I'm kind of a callous kind of a guy. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not your, your you know, strongest emotional kind of a guy. But you know, when it comes to souls, it's serious stuff. Yeah? When I stand up in front of my classroom and I look at my kids, you know, sometimes they're just kids. Sometimes I look at them and I say, man, you know, It's all going to be binary when it's over. You know, you're saved or you're not. Well, in early 1844, Miller said this. He said, I have preached about 4,500 lectures in about 12 years to at least 500,000 different people. I have broken my constitution and lost my health. And for what? That if possible, I might be the means of saving some. Commendable. I like that. James White wrote, God forbid that I should fold my arms in lazy lock while sinners are sinking to eternal night. I have never found an exact definition, but I've always assumed that this is lazy lock. That's the best I could figure on it. Um, James didn't. Yeah, you read a biography on James White. Yeah, he was a busy guy. Um, Joel Spaulding was, he's, he's like a no-name, unsung hero, one of the uh, hundreds of preachers who took up the Millerite message. On one little episode, he traveled 275 miles in 40 days. His horse fell twice into sloughs and once while crossing a river up to the stirrups. This is not earth-shaking, but I love the spirit of this. He wrote, as I was cast into the river, the horse fell upon me, but I escaped unhurt with the exception of a lame ankle on which I was unable to bear my weight for some days, <laughs> but none of these things moved me. <laughs> I like that. Okay, so I'm sopping wet and it was probably in the middle of the winter and I have a leg that I can't make work properly anymore, but so what? <laughs> so what? Okay. Ellen White wrote, <clears throat> We need more zeal and animation in the Lord's work, more genuine interest in matters of eternal importance. Since the Lord has declared that he is more than willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, then parents are to give good gifts to their children, why do we not accept the promise so freely made? Why do we not consecrate ourselves to God? Entire surrender to the Lord is something that is revealed in the daily life and it exerts an influence upon other lives. Um, focus on that last thought there. Why am I having trouble here? Very end of that. It exerts an influence upon other lives. Oh, I know why. Okay. Okay. 
human nature is such that very few of us will continue a behavior that does not receive some form of, of reinforcement and support. Um, if you're, you know, a prisoner of war or something and, and you're in a very tough circumstance and you're, the, the circumstances focus your thoughts on the necessity of holding to a certain position or something like that, then you'll have, you know, you'll have some people who can be very heroic. But most often we're not in situations like that. We're in situations where it's just, you know, we're, it's normal life. And normal life in most places and most settings does not encourage more zeal and animation in the Lord's work, more genuine interest in matters of eternal importance. I've got a theory that says that in a local church, you know, local churches, every, every local church has its own aura for want of a better term and there's a there's like a critical mass that develops of entire what is saying genuine interest zeal animation you know and when one person moves in that direction it has an influence upon other lives and the influence is either going to be sufficient to make a difference or not sufficient and then it will die Um, I'm encouraged when I see something that resembles at least enough critical mass to keep the motion alive. Now, I'm going to diverge here from um, Adventist history for a moment, and I want to recommend a book. Um, I want to very, very highly recommend this book. Uh, it's free. You don't have to pay anything for it. So all the poor college students who you know, are struggling to find enough food to you know, stay alive, you can get the book for free. This is the title, Behold the Lamb, the Story of the Moravian Church. Um, very quickly, if I mentioned Moravians in terms of spiritual history, how many of you have any connotation of Moravians. Good. And is there one story that stands out in your mind where you ran into the name Moravians? On the boat with, with John and Charles Wesley. Yeah. Those were the guys. And this is the story of their church. That's all I... I Moravians. I mean, that's, that's all I ever... You know, and I never even thought about them. I mean, oh, John, John Wesley. I mean, he's the hero of the story. Come on. Moravians are the hero of the story. I, I'd never heard the story. It's a great story. Uh, some of you may associate it with this name. Ever hear of Herrenhut? You might have seen a movie that was made some while back called First Fruits. It's a, you know, semi... I mean, it wasn't a Hollywood movie type of thing, but, you know, it's, um, it's the story of the first Moravian missionary, uh, 21 or 2 or some such year old fellow by the name of Leonard Dober who left Hernhut, which was their colony, whatever, their, their 
um, compound over there in Germany. And he went, well, yeah, okay, I'll give you a little more story here. Actually, I think I got more of that story coming anyhow. So, um, He went down to um, St. Thomas in the Caribbean to witness to the slaves. And you, you might have seen that movie. I don't know. If you haven't seen the movie, it's, it's reasonably accurate. It's, you know, it's still a movie, and I have my hang-ups with movies, but it's one of the better ones if you're going to watch any of them. Now, here's the important one. Jot this down or memorize it. Take your pick. But those are the only two options www.allgodsword.com slash books dot htm okay there are three books there as pdfs they're not that you know long to download i downloaded them with a dial-up access you know don't don't tell me you can't do it on high speed okay um incredible just very incredible i will give you a touch of the story here You'll get one more chance on that address. In 1731, like I said, this is pre-Advance history, but you know, the church at Herrnhut sent out a single missionary to the slaves in the island of St. Thomas. Now, Herrnhut was essentially one local church. I don't know figures. It was probably what we'd consider a large church. 3,000, 5,000, something like that. I'm not sure. I've heard that there are Advance churches that large someplace. Um... But this was, this was one, one young man, okay? What happened is that uh, in 1728, there was a revival. And the young people at Herrenhut said, you know, we just noticed this whole Great Commission thing. <laughs> we need to go tell the world. And the wiser more cautious, more deliberate adults said, yes, that's certainly important. Let us consider this. <laughs> and they managed to stall everything down for about three, almost four years. And finally, the young people said, I don't think you're doing anything. <laughs> it's time to go. And eventually, skipping over parts of the story, but this one, one guy, Leonard Dover, he went down to St. Thomas. The only way he could witness to the slaves was by becoming a slave. We were talking about consecration. Okay. In 31 years... No, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong screen. One more page. Here we go. By 1768... In 31 years, 79 missionaries had been murdered or died of tropical fevers, all from Herrnhut. They kept sending them out, and they kept dying like flies. The story is incredible. But they had baptized nearly 4,800 slaves. 60 new Christians for every life given. You know, I've been in soul-saving work all my life. Teaching. It's hard. 
especially when you're working with Adventist kids. You know, you never know whether you can take any credit for anything or not. Have I saved 60 souls? I think that'd be generous. I think that would be generous. Have I wasted my time? Maybe I need to get a little more drastic. Well, let's jump a little bit more. By 1781, after 50 years, for 50 years the Moravians labored in the West Indies without aid from any other religious denomination. They established churches on St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. Not to mention... Greenland, New England, uh, actually Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was Moravian. Uh, Wachovia, um, wherever else uh, was Moravian. Um, Savannah, Georgia, that's where John Wesley was going on a Moravian boat. That was that was their boat. They that was a, that was the Moravian boat. They'd converted the captain. <laughs> they converted the captain. He says, okay, and he spent his time. Now ferrying Moravians around. Um, they had mission stations in South Africa. They had mission stations in Turkey. They had mission stations in Siberia. They had, they were all over the place in 50 years. Just talking about the Caribbean though. They had 13,000 baptized Christians before a missionary from any other church arrived on the scene. Okay. If you missed it last time, it's your last chance. Write it down or memorize it. Take your pick. It's, it's well worth the read. The other two books are too. Um, I won't talk about them though because I don't have all time, all that much time. Okay, let's go on. The great outpouring of the Spirit of God which lightens the whole earth with His glory will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. When we have entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of his spirit without measure. But this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. Almost makes it sound like God believes in some sort of a critical mass too. Like at least 50%. <laughs> now, you know, there are two ways... If you've got a group of a hundred people, just to choose an easy number, there are two ways, well, let's just put it this way, let's just, let's say you've got a hundred people, and as uh, using a, a figure that Ellen White once used, one in twenty is on the right track. Well, that would be five. So in order to get from five to a majority of the church, there are actually two ways to do that. You can either aim for 51 or wait until all but nine have left. And then you've got five, you see, and you've got the majority. It's pretty simple. I like math. we need to somehow start working for at least the 51.
If the truth for this time, if the signs that are thickening on every hand that testify that the end of all things is at hand are not sufficient to arouse the sleeping energy of those who profess to know the truth, then darkness, proportionate to the light which has been shining, will overtake these souls. There is not the semblance of an excuse for their indifference that they will be able to present to God in the great day of final reckoning. There will be no reason to offer as to why they did not live and walk and work in the light of the sacred truth of the word of God and thus reveal to a sin-darkened world through their conduct, their sympathy, and their zeal that the power and reality of the gospel could not be controverted. The power and reality of the gospel are very easily controverted when it is weak and treated as unreal. And that's awful easy to do. I have a hundred opportunities every day and I take advantage of too many of them, I suspect, to treat the gospel as weak and unreal. Well, moving on, different topic, same time period, fanaticism. You know, about the time you have a group of people or even an individual who says, I'm going to get serious about this, that's about the time you can expect fanaticism to crop up. You know, I, I, I have a saying that I use, and it may not be readily clear what I'm meaning by it, but I use it with my students enough that they now understand what I mean by it. And that is, the devil never plays the game one deep. If all he wanted to do was to keep us inactive, then all we would have to do is become active. But he's got a contingency plan for that too. And about the time I become active in the Lord's work, he is ready to steer me off one side, this side, that side, the other side into fanaticism. It virtually always happens. Not to all parties, of course, but you know, anytime there is something dramatic going on, there is that that tendency, that danger. Well, uh, it cropped up notably in the Millerite movement in the case of John Starkweather, assistant pastor at <laughs> Joshua Heim's church, Chardon Street Chapel. Starkweather said conversion must be followed by a second work. Okay? Well, <clears throat> if by that he means sanctification, I suppose, you know, I could maybe accept that. But that's not exactly what he meant. He said that this is usually indicated by some bodily sensation. Okay? And these um, 
bodily sensations and came to be known as the sealing power of God. You know, the, the children of Israel had a hard time dealing with a God they couldn't see. It was, it was an issue for them. <laughs> and I think maybe this is somewhat related. A lot of people have a hard time working towards a goal they cannot tangibly say they've attained. The whole idea of I press towards a mark, you know, I die daily, sanctification being the work of a lifetime, that's, that's very troubling to some minds. And they, they want something that's more tangible, more solid, more reassuring. At least that's my armchair psychiatric evaluation of the case. And in Starkweather's case, and those who were uh, influenced by him, this unusual bodily sensation was reassuring. It told them that they were God's children. Unfortunately, that's not the way God tells us that we're his children. But they wanted it to be. This is a nice little statement. I like the way they put this. Those who were familiar with the history of fanaticism in past ages, who had read with pain the termination of the career of the eloquent Edward Irving in England, who knew the devastation caused by fanaticism in the time of the Reformation, of its effects in the early ages of Christianity, and of the results produced by it even in many portions of our own country during the infancy of some of the sects among us, were at no loss respecting its character, meaning the work that Starkweather was doing there. That's one sentence. I always admire sentences like that, since I teach English. Um, <laughs> It's called a periodic sentence because you don't put the grammatical details in until the very end, at the period, you see. Um, all strung out there with nice little subordinate clauses. Um, but there's, there's value in this. What it says there, this, uh, this incidentally was written by uh, Sylvester Bliss, I believe it was. I didn't footnote that one or reference it, but I believe that was Sylvester Bliss who wrote that. And his point was simply that, you know, if you do know something about church history, if you do know something about the past and, and these kind of things, you know, there's some practical benefit in it. Um, being able to recognize fanaticism is one very practical benefit. Well, Himes had been gone preaching and teaching and working for about seven months, actually. And word came drifting out into the field as to what was going on back at home. And so Joshua Himes went back home. And he requested his pulpit back. Just for the weekend, just for Sunday. He just wanted to preach once. Well, that's a reasonable request. It was, after all, theoretically his church, right? So Himes spoke one Sunday in general terms quite general terms, about how the Lord works, how to tell the difference between the Spirit of God and fanaticism. 
it offended some people. This so shocked the sensibilities of those who regarded the manifestations there as the great power of God that they cried out and stopped their ears. Some jumped upon their feet and ran out of the house. You will drive out the Holy Ghost, cried one. You are throwing on cold water, said another. I would throw on the Atlantic Ocean before I would be identified with such abominations as these or suffer them in this place unrebuked, Himes said. About that point, he decided it was not working to talk in general terms, and he became much more specific, <laughs> as you might have picked up. <laughs> um, that's, that's an important lesson to learn. It very rarely works to deal with fanaticism in general terms. It just doesn't make the influence that needs to be made. Yeah. How do you do it? You know? How do you how do you deal with it? How do you stay out of it yourself? How do you deal with it when you see it in others? Two very important lessons. Well, <clears throat> James White is writing about the seventh month movement. Now if you are not placing that term the seventh month movement was the same as what we might call the midnight cry, okay? The special emphasis during the period of, uh, what, August 12, 1844 to October 22, 1844, um, during which the focus shifted from just the end of the 2300 days, to the specific application of the sanctuary types and a, a accurate calculation of the 2300 days. Um, it was just that short time period, August 12, at um, Exeter, New Hampshire. Samuel Sheffield Snow was the guy who kind of started that whole thing. From August 12 to October 22 was the seventh month movement. And it was called the seventh month because the um, Day of Atonement was the tenth day of the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar. Okay? So this is, what, uh, this is that time period that James White is talking about here. He says, The seventh month movement was subversive of all those forms of fanaticism which had made their appearance somewhat in connection with the second advent cause. And it is a fact that Satan had crowded upon some who bore the Advent name almost every stripe of fanaticism he had ever invented. But these were at once swallowed up by the solemn power of the midnight cry as the rods of the magicians were by the rod of Aaron. Why? How? It's worth asking. If James is right, that the midnight cry was, shall we say, the antidote, or maybe the death knell of fanaticism, why? How? I'm not sure I know. And you're all sitting there saying, so why is this guy talking? <laughs> you know, why bring it up if you don't have an answer? Well, because... Because that's a great question, that's why. <laughs> I think 
is my best understanding, but I'm not sure I understand it yet. I think it was because the seventh month movement so completely focused on Christ. You know, you read William Miller's account of it, you know, and he says, there wasn't any shouting. There wasn't any singing. They were saving, nothing wrong with singing, the Millerites sang, you know, there's nothing immoral about that, okay? But he, says, he said, you know, it was a solemn message. It was not a, oh, happy day, we're going to heaven type of message, you know? It was convicting, solemn, Christ-centered. Fanaticism, in some way or the other, I believe, is always self-centered. Probably in different ways, different forms. That's my guess. If you come to a better understanding of exactly how it is the seventh month movement destroyed fanaticism, please let me know. Ellen White commented similarly. She said, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Pretty good recommendation. <laughs> um, I'd like to have that said about an evangelistic series I was holding. <laughs> or anything I had anything to do with. The autumn. She's very specific. She's talking the seventh month movement here again. The autumn of 1844. Not just the whole thing. But that special time period. One of the more specific practical things that Ellen White repeats several times concerning the value of history is that fanaticism will return. Which sort of begs the question as to whether it ever actually left in the first place. But... Um, I think I have three of these type of statements. I was instructed that fanaticism similar to that which we were called to meet after the passing of the time in 1844 would come in among us again in the closing days of the message and that we must eat the, meet this evil just as decidedly now as we met it in our early experience. There's a simple lesson here. This is one of the take-home points from tonight's meeting. If any of us are fortunate enough to actually live in the very last of the last days, we will be guaranteed to have the privilege of dealing with fanaticism. We must be on guard for it in ourselves, and we must develop techniques to minimize or eliminate it in others. And she says we must meet this evil just as decidedly now as we met it in our early experience. experiences. Fanaticism is not something you do with halfway measures. Himes tried. All he got was a bunch of people running around the church with their hands in their ears. <laughs> you know, it's, you've, you've, you've got to commit yourself. It's part of what makes it scary. It's not the time or the place for sitting on the fence. You've got to commit. 
I have been shown that deceptions like those we were called to meet in the early experiences of the message would be repeated and that we shall have to meet them again in the closing days of this of the work. Okay, very similar thought, totally different source, but anyhow. I have long known that fanaticism will be manifest again in different ways. We are to strengthen our position by dwelling on the word and by avoiding all oddities and strange exercisings that some would be very quick to catch up and practice. Now, what I've put before you tonight <clears throat> is not an easy mix. I started off by encouraging almost radical consecration, which is probably never more than a hair's breadth away from fanaticism. Now, the hair's breadth is all the difference in the world. And I suppose the width of that hair is the presence or the absence of the spirit. <laughs> I think what it tells me... To what, now, <laughs> let me give you a warning on this. As I, as I prepared the presentations for this weekend, every one of them comes down to a, a, a pretty unexciting conclusion. <laughs> it's nothing dramatic or fancy. It's just hard, cold, the Lord will ever repeat his dealings. This is what happened before. We better get ready for it. We're going to have to deal with it properly this time. So there's nothing really complicated here. This is not rocket science. God's people will never get done what needs to be done without greater consecration. Anytime there is an increase in consecration, there will be a likely an increase in probability of fanaticism. Fanaticism, don't, no, don't get me wrong, they're miles apart. Okay? I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit leads us into fanaticism. But real serious consecration is pretty intense stuff. And intensity is easily lost control of in some people's minds. It requires the Holy Spirit. And... One day, one hour, at the wrong time, the wrong place, without the Holy Spirit controlling, with that level of intensity, and you can be in a world of hurt. Um, consecration is necessary. And dealing with fanaticism will also be necessary. And both require... Pretty clear cut, hard nosed commitment. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the time of the end, and you, you knew this, this is not new. The time of the end will not be kind to anyone 
who wants to go through sort of half-heartedly. And the effect of one life will influence another. And we need a critical mass. The outpouring of the Spirit will never come while the greater portion of God's church is not working with Him. I don't think there's anything complicated there except actually doing it. If I thought there was some way to come up with some really profound theory that would make me look smart, I'd probably be tempted to do it, but I, I don't think there's even any need for one. <laughs> it boils down to nothing's going to happen unless we get committed. And bad things will happen unless there are good people around who will step up to the plate and stop them. And that would be two of the characteristics of the time of the end, as foreshadowed in eschatological precursor events. And that's all I have to say tonight. I'm not sure what your usual procedure, would you stand for prayer or something? Is that what you would do? Okay. Shall we stand for prayer? Father, sometimes we are <clears throat> faced with issues that are so clear-cut that it's hard to find a way to get confused. And Lord, we are thankful that you are never confused and that you are more willing to give the Spirit to us than parents are to give good gifts to their children. And we would want, Lord, in the little time that we have, and with the little skill or power or strength that we have, we would want to do what you would do if you were here personally in our place. And so we pray that you would teach us. Give us the consecration and the dedication and the determination to step out, to ignore the lame ankles and the occasional fall in the river, to be willing to preach, to ruin our constitution and lose our health, if by any means we might save some. And even, Lord, to give our lives if we might be among those grains of wheat that return a 60-fold harvest. We thank you for these privileges and these opportunities, and we just simply want to commit our lives into your keeping now. In Jesus' name, amen.